0: Uh, Russell's going to open the class with prayer this morning.
1: Gracious mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, we come before you to acknowledge you as our creator and redeemer, and we want to thank you for the gift of life and the gift of health and for the gift of healing itself. I want to thank you for going to such great lengths to win humanity back of trust and acceptance through the life and death of your Son on this earth. We've got our study this morning. Um, we ask continued blessings on our class corporately and individually. I say sends in the name of Jesus, amen.
0: Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly discipleship. And the title of the lesson today is Discipleship Under Pressure. If someone could read the memory text and then the first two paragraphs there in the Sabbath portion, uh, please.
1: If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, how can you contend with the horses? And if, in the land of peace, in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the flooding of the Jordan? Ever hear of Murphy's Law? It was considered by some to be one of the fundamental laws of nature, as pervasive as gravity and electromagnetism. Stated briefly, it reads, whatever can go wrong, will go wrong. We have all had moments, even days or longer, that uh, seem to follow Murphy's Law. Sometimes our experiences as disciples seem to follow it as well. No doubt we have the promises of God that should help us not to get discouraged, but how easy it is sometimes, even with the promises, to be tempted to give up in despair. Of course, no matter what, we never should.
0: As, as you hear that, what, what comes to mind? Any, any thoughts? Clichés. Empty cliches. Empty cliches?
2: Murphy's Law. Most of the laws that they found out were set in motion by God. Right. What, Murphy's
0: law? Was Murphy's Law set in motion by God, he said? No. <laughs> no. And see, what does Murphy's Law suggest to me? Well, yes, it, it suggests that the lesson is, is suggesting, they're talking about wearing us down or, or, or wearing us out, uh, life stress, but it's suggesting that, uh, that perspective or expectation is a major factor in, in how we handle events or situations. Do you, all, do you all see how your expectation or perspective on a situation would would change how you experience that that, that situation? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just the situation itself; it's our perspective on it. Murphy's Law, of course, is a is what kind of a perspective? If you have the Murphy's Law attitude, yeah. Exactly. And see, we know neurobiologically that this is true, that when we have negative thought patterns, when we we have pessimistic beliefs or ideas, we have worries or irrational fears that aren't based on facts, uh, pessimistic thinking, you know, you see the the glass at the midway point and and your interpretation, oh, it's, it's, it's half empty rather than half full that type of attitude actually causes a cascade of events in our our mind which activates negative stress hormones in our body which activates uh, cytokines which are damaging to the body I mean it's this whole negative cascade of health consequences that come from negative and pessimistic thinking so how can we prevent this type of thinking what suggestions might you have well, I, I like the larger view. I teach my patients, step back, look at it from a, a larger view, take a different perspective, take a different angle on it. Would you consider yourself lucky if, um, you know, shortly before, say, uh, your, your exams or, or, or a, a wedding or something, you came down with the flu? <laughs> Would you say, oh, there's Murphy's Law? <laughs> Well, in, in uh, the January 30, 2008, New Scientist, they reported on the 1918 flu, flu pandemic. Uh, if anybody remembers history, this, this flu pandemic killed tens of millions of people worldwide. However, six months before the flu pandemic that killed everyone, there was a minor, uh, more mild flu outbreak in Scandinavia. And the people who got the flu uh, in six months prior to the great pandemic uh, were ten times less likely to die when the great flu pandemic hit. And cities that had the the mild flu hit six months before the the great pandemic had 40 times less deaths in their cities than the cities that didn't have the mild version hit. So if if you had, you know, been in the summer of 1918, had that milder version hit right before, say, your wedding, and you were get this flu, would you have been able to step back and say, you know, there's probably some good that's going to come out of this?
1: (laughs) <laughs>
0: but six months later when tens of millions of people are dying and you've got immunity to that could you look back and say wow sure I'm glad I got that mild version six months before does perspective make a difference Yeah. and sometimes do we get a narrow view do we focus in only on the here and now and in this moment of, of discomfort and forget maybe possibilities beyond yes
2: but most of the time in our lives, we don't have all the facts until, you know, a bit later.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. That's why we take lessons like this story, or the example I, I use sometimes, you've heard, is that child is getting vaccines from the child's perspective is the parent is holding the child. What's the child's perspective on that experience? We're talking a 12-month, 14-month-old, 18-month-old, the child's perspective. Is this a a good thing?
3: It hurts.
0: It hurts? Why are you doing this? Don't you love me? I thought you were going to care for me? Yet, uh, can't all of us who've had vaccines look back and be appreciative now that our parents did that for us? Mm -hmm. Uh, With our relationship with God, do we sometimes, when we're in some difficulty, some painful experience, uh, ask Him, why do you let this happen to me? Why is this going on? And, And Is God's response the same? Well. Um, because I'm trying to protect you from something down the road. You see, when we have that, those, those types of examples, then can we translate those over to those moments when we're experiencing some difficulty, but we don't know the reason why, that we can say, you know, this must be one of those times as well. I can't figure it out quite yet. But there's going to be a good reason, because I know whom whom I trust. Isn't that what these types of examples help us do? So perspective, yes?
2: All things work together for him. For him
0: you know, it says all things work together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. But it doesn't say all things are good. Yeah. See, all things aren't good, but all things... See, God has the ability even to take something that isn't good and turn it into a good and bring a good out of it. Does that make sense? Yeah.
2: It seems like you know, most of us um, still have the feeling, though, that when these things happen to us, that it's God doing them to us. That, that there's that theology out there that, well, this must be God's will. <laughs> you know, I'm such a victim in this. God is punishing me for something. your know, um, child died. God must have you know, had his hand in that to teach you. And I think it's, you know, it's a fine line between how you interpret that. If you say, this is from God to teach me something, then that changes how we see God.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the difficulty, isn't it? Because not every experience can be interpreted in one or the other category. Does a loving parent sometimes intervene with vaccines to protect their child and bring it upon the child? Does the child sometimes experience painful consequences that the parent would have protected that child against and and prevent if, if the child's free will would have followed the parent's guidance? You see, so... Sometimes in our lives, we can have things that seem painful in the moment that are brought by God for our growth, for our development, for our healing, not as an an injury. I'll give you an example. If you have a broken leg... Don't start. (laughs) (laughs) That's our resident physical therapist. And you go to physical therapy, the physical therapy feels bad. Doesn't it? Come on. Even if it's a good physical therapy, putting weight down on a a leg that's been broken for the first time does not feel good. But it is good for us. So our perception, if we don't have a greater perspective on what's happening, we could misperceive that, that this is bad because it hurts. I think sometimes God is bringing very good things to us, but we are broken in heart. We've been injured. We've been damaged. And so it could feel initially like something bad. But as we heal and we get a larger perspective, we realize it was actually very good. And I can give examples from my own life where that's been true. Conversely, however, we have an enemy, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so many painful things come that have no uh, direction from from God's hand. And the difficulty is when we we try to lump them all in one category or the other category. And I see much damage occur. I have patients who have lost loved ones. And the well-meaning Christian friends and preachers will say things like, Jesus took your mommy to be with him. Now, if you you say that, and and you're trying to give comfort, you see. Mm -hmm. But what's the meaning? Jesus killed your mommy.
3: Or Jesus needs my mommy
0: more than I do. Yes, whatever. But Jesus, yes, exactly. But Jesus is the one behind this bad experience here. And so, you know, I think we can be pretty confident that most of the time, um, you know, God is not behind putting his children to sleep. There have been occasions in the Bible where that's happened. But those occasions always have uh, clear and, uh, and obvious uh, reasons behind why that is. It's not the person that gets sick and suddenly just slips off into, into their rest. That's not God at work. But as we apply these things we're thinking about to our Christian journey, let's jump to Thursday's lesson. And in Thursday's lesson, it quotes Matthew 25... Verse fifty six, and it says, "Then all the disciples forsook him and fled." Talking about Jesus, you know, in his in his trial, and he's been arrested, and he's being beaten. And all the all the, we're talking about this perspective issue. How do we handle trials? How do we handle adversities? And it says, "All the disciples forsook him and fled." Do you think they fled because they had a problem with perspective and expectation?
4: Yes.
0: Yeah. What perspective and what expectation did the disciples have about Christ and his mission?
4: An earthly kingdom. Yeah.
0: And was it because that Christ had failed to provide them the information necessary to improve their perspective? No. How many times can we say that Christ told them that he was going to die and rise again on the third day at least three or four times didn 't he Why do you think they didn 't understand that why couldn 't they see that in what? It isn't what they wanted. So Christ is saying these words out loud, I'm going to, to die, I'm going to the Son of Man has to go and, and sacrifice himself, die, he's going to rise again on the third day, and destroy this temple, and it will be restored in three days. I mean he's given all these these, these information, but the disciples somehow are oblivious to it.
4: Well it didn't fit their model, so they just ignored it.
0: Yes. Yes, it's a good question. You, you probably can answer
2: this from a psychological standpoint better than most, but um... We have paradigms, and what don't fit into our paradigms gets peeled off. And so, um, you don't recognize things that do not fit into what makes sense to your
0: brain. As very well stated, and we see the example here in the Apostle's life. I mean, these people spent three years with Jesus. Wouldn't you feel privileged to have spent three years walking on the earth with Jesus? Wouldn't that be cool? But how sad a commentary would it be? After three years, you still don't understand what he's saying. (laughs) <laughs> okay, I mean, you speak in plain words, but you're not getting it. That would be a pretty sad commentary, wouldn't it? And the reason they weren't getting it is because you're exactly right. They had these preconceived ideas, they had the biases, they had their prejudices, they had their expectations, they had these perspectives, they had their constructs, and the things that didn't fit, they got bounced off their minds. It didn't, didn't resonate. Yeah, so, still have yeah. that's the point. How do we still struggle with those same things today?
1: I know. Absolutely. Uh, we all know people who... I actually,
0: prefer to believe a lie. How do we then protect ourselves, knowing that we're finite, knowing that we're not infinite, knowing there's always information beyond our current knowledge? How do we protect ourselves from having a mind like this, like the apostles had?
3: I think it's really important to formulate our own beliefs rather than go. I think a lot of us go on. No, I mean, not saying specifically in here, but as humans in general, we base our beliefs on things that we've just been taught rather than learning things and searching for things for ourselves. You know, and I think that can be
1: really dangerous. Absolutely. That's an
0: excellent point.
1: I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, as long as what you believe in is the truth. (laughs) Because the people who are going to be saved at the end are going to be so settled into the truth that they won't be able to be moved. Yes, but... the paradigm will be in the truth, and anything that doesn't apply to that truth has to be rejected. And why will...
5: The difference is, is that what you're saying is a settling in because of searching the Scriptures and working out all those things in our relationship so we do have a trust in Him and He is willing and doing through us as well as in us. Correct. The other is just a, a lack of searching, a lack of wanting to understand and being satisfied with the status quo of either whatever your church believes Whatever your culture believes, whatever your parents believe, whatever the preacher believes.
0: Chris?
2: Well, and I think something important to note here is that our perspective of the truth shouldn't be
4: static, necessarily. Mm-hmm.
0: Beautiful. Absolutely. See, that was the point. Truth is progressive. Progressive. I mean, truth is always unfolding. We will, for all eternity, in the perfect new heaven and new earth, we will be continuing to learn, won't we? Continuing to come and have more and more insight, more understanding, more knowledge. Truth will be unfolding. And so it seems to me that the difference is, is that those who have settled into the truth about God haven't closed their minds to more truth. They actually have developed a heart that says, I love the truth and I'm willing to follow the truth wherever the truth leads, knowing that more truth will be revealed with time. But those who have settled into the other direction have closed their minds. Don't don't confuse me with facts now. Don't 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 give me any evidence or truth that could that could unsettle my little world. You see, they have an attitudinal difference where they don't want to be enlightened, versus the the person who says, you know, I love my current understanding, but but I realize there's more to know yet than they want to know more. Yes.
1: Sometimes I do believe that us SDAs kind of tend to fall into the same trap that we think we have the the truth. And when a crisis develops in the country, we say this is the last run. We're headed to the Sunday law coming about. And then it's a false alarm, and another false alarm. Yes. We we have the same problem.
0: I think you're right. And when somebody in our own organization comes up with, say, oh, let's just say a a moving of the truth, a a step forward Mm -hmm. that might expand our current understanding of something, and you meet a person who's got that other mindset that no, we're static. Truth mm-hmm. is the what it is. and we, How does that other person respond? Especially that other person might be in leadership. Angry. It's to quash out the truth, isn't it? It's like, don't... Yeah, I won't get too personal at this point. <laughs> but as we move on, uh, somebody read the first two paragraphs there in Thursday's lesson.
3: The disciples spent three and a half years with Jesus. They had privileges that very few in the world ever had. They saw things few humans ever did. After all, among the world's billions, how many ever saw Jesus in the flesh? More so, how many ever interacted day after day with him while he was here in the flesh? These disciples were among the most privileged humans ever to have lived. Of course, that was part of the problem. They were humans, fallen humans, and that's no matter what the Lord did for them, the lessons were not easily learned.
0: Several things from that section I, I thought of. Um, do you think... Oh, certainly it was privileged time to, to live with Christ and walk with Him. But if, if not living there during that period of earth's history, that three and a half year period, what would be the next best time to live?
4: Right Creation. Now. Right now.
0: Yeah, Adam and Eve? That would be a good time. And then? Right. After, the, after the sin problem? Wouldn't it be the, the group of people who are, are preparing themselves for translation? Mm. That translation generation, that group that's going to see the final events come? Yeah, I want to talk about that today and see about our mindset on that, what our expectations are, what our perspective is, to see if maybe we have actually have some ideas that are similar to the apostles' ideas, what they were expecting. They were expecting certain things to fold in a certain way. They had a great disappointment. You know, We know from our history, uh, 1844, they had a certain expectation, a certain perspective, and, and it was not correct, and there was a great disappointment. Hmm. Do, do we need to worry about that today mm-hmm. as events unfold? And maybe we have certain constructs that have been taught to us our whole life in our own organization that might actually unprepare us, should I say, uh, keep us from being really ready. Is that possible? That, that we haven't taken a step to further enhance as the truth progresses and unfolds. Well, in the Middle Dark section on Thursday, somebody read that section for us. we are just skim through the Gospel.
4: What were the amazing things that Jesus said and did in the sight of his disciples? How much incredible proof did he give them concerning who he was? After going over these incidents, look at the text for today. What fearful message, even warning, can we draw from this for ourselves?
0: Were the disciples of Christ ignoring Jesus' warning?
4: They ignored what he said.
0: Are we ignoring warnings of Jesus for us today?
4: I think we we tend to. But they weren't intentionally. No, they weren't intentionally. Maybe? I don't know. It's interesting, though, that when Jesus was crucified and buried, that the chief priests, they remembered what he said and asked the Romans to seal the tomb. He said he would rise the third day.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Isn't that interesting? The disciples forgot, the enemies remembered. Isn't that interesting? Well, Matthew 24, Jesus says there will be wars, famines, pestilence, persecutions, false prophets, false Christ, false Gospels, great tribulation such as the world has never seen. Um, All this is coming upon the world. He says these are are just the the beginning of the labor pains. pains. But what does much of the the Christian world teach about what's going to happen before Christ comes? Peace
4: everybody will
0: believe. Is are they teaching a, a, a process of going through a time of difficulty, or are they te- teaching an escape from that trouble? Get a, second hand. a secret rapture? That somehow we're not here to go through this difficulty? Why were the disciples unprepared? They weren't expecting what Christ had tried to teach them. Do you think the Christian world in large is expecting what's about to break upon the world?
2: No, absolutely not.
0: Yeah. Are we expecting it? The events that happen,
5: they just don't expect to go through it.
0: Exactly.
5: Yes. That's my point, though. Yeah. they for the false second coming because they're expecting a, a spiritual resurrection, not a physical one. They're not expecting it to be a last day. That's right. And so they're, they are totally prepared by Satan to accept the false second coming and be deceived. All the Christians. How
0: many of us want Jesus to come in our lifetime? How many? I mean, we all do, don't we? Jesus said that there would be these troubles, wars, pestilence, famines, the beginning of the labor pains. When a woman goes into labor, is the pain the worst at the beginning or or right before the delivery? Right before the delivery. So do we expect these times to get worse right before Christ comes? Yeah? So so I'm, I'm just leading our minds here. If we want Christ to come, how do we pray? I mean, imagine a woman who's pregnant praying, Lord, I want to see my child, but don't let me go, on, go through any pain. <laughs> Keep back the pain, Lord. Hold back the pain, but I want to see my child. Do we pray, Lord, we want to see you, but, but send your angels to hold back the hard times. Don't let troubles come. Keep us safe. Don't let us lose our property. Don't let us have uh, the, the pestilence and the, and, the, and the troubles and the famines and the wars come. Hold it back, Lord, but yet we want you to come. Nope. Is there a contradiction there?
3: Mm-hmm. So how do you look at all of that without fear?
0: I'd like to answer your question before I
2: ask mine, and that is um, God said that He would be with us always. Okay? And that as we walk, we, we learn what that means. I guess part of the, the dilemma, though, is Christ in His discussion said, pray that this, your flight not be in winter. Now I figured out why he said we're on the Sabbath because the doors were closed and you couldn't get out. (laughs) Okay, why not in winter? And um, it does make you wonder if Christ instructed or in his discussion said, "Pray that this doesn't happen to you during the winter time." You know, there's a he he had a reason
0: for. Is that is that the same thing as praying that it doesn't happen?
2: Well, he, he's praying. He, he's at least encouraging to to pray that this does not happen during a time which would make it
0: worse. But he's not praying to put it off. No. Right. And so, do we pray? I mean, there are prayers, by in effect, say. Well, maybe not this winter. Yeah, exactly. There are prayers in effect. <laughs> there are prayers in effect. Say to God, we're not. We want you to come, but but don't come. Yeah. Do we do that? Revelation 12 and 11, strapping those who are ready to meet Jesus. Remember, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Do you think that means these are those people that are ready to say, okay, Lord, stop holding back the pain. Bring it on. Bring it on. Let's go through it. Let, let's, let's go through those difficult days in order to get the Lord here. Now, why might that be? Have you ever wondered why? I've had some people ask me, how is it that the Lord can bring the whole world to that point of decision? I mean, we have so few missionaries. Some people really hear the gospel. Millions of people are being born every day. Six billion people in the world. How can he really bring everybody to that point of decision? To know the gospel, right? Have you ever wondered that? Yes. Well, where is... uh, What are those two antagonistic motives that that struggle for supremacy in our hearts?
4: Love
0: and Selfishness, right? And We have to come down on one side or the other. Now, tell me, when... When is character most revealed, in in the good times or the hard times? Hard times. Hard times. So, as times get tough, will people be put in a position to either act in love to help others or to act in ways to protect self and to protect self-interest, to protect self-assets? Will I find myself in a position where people... Might be threatening to take all my finances, my home, and, and I have to act in ways that could be. I mean, just think about Nazi Germany. What did people do to protect their assets? They went
3: along.
0: They went along. But some didn't go along. I think this was a, an opportunity for character to be revealed. Yeah. And do you think as time unfolds, the same test will come upon all? And we're going to either be in a position where we're going to give of ourselves to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, uh, heal the sick, uh, give of ourselves to the expense of ourselves, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us and we ought to give our lives for our brothers, or we're going to protect ourselves and leave others out in the cold. Do you think this might be how the whole world, so as the, as the economies start collapsing in the world, the famines start occurring, there's less and less available, that people will be forced to decide how they're going to treat their neighbor? One way or the other. Everyone's going to decide. And they're going to settle into a position where they're willing to sacrifice themselves to help others, or they're willing to sacrifice others to protect themselves. What do you all think? Possible. Yes hmm
5: Isn't that something that we're to be doing now?
0: Absolutely. That's what prepares us to handle that time. Absolutely.
5: That's my point particularly, because the Lord, you know, this we don't understand that our lifestyle and that our what we what we value physically in this world monetarily correlates with the development of our character. Because if we can't love our brother enough to give all. To love the Lord enough to say, you know, whatever it takes, cut it away. I want I want to know you and I want to be like you. If we don't do that now, then we're not we are actually keeping the end from coming. And when it does come, it's going to be so much harder and we may not make it. So we make those choices today as his people, because we have the knowledge and we know the plan.
0: I put up on my blog last night uh, this little story that we just went through about Elijah and uh, the widow. You Remember, there was a famine. No, 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 no rain. Everything's drying up. This was a time of distress and trouble. And Elijah goes to where the widow is and tells her to give him some water and some bread. And she said, I only have enough flour and oil for one more loaf, and I'm going to go make it, and my son and I are going to eat it and die. And he says, Go get me, do as I say, First, Now, she had a choice. Protect her last little morsels on earth for her and her son, or give her last little morsels to this stranger. Which is in harmony with God's law of love? The protecting for self or the giving to another? Put yourself in that situation. You're in a famine. There is no resources around. There's no grocery store to go down and get more. This is your last morsel of food. She chose to give. Put herself in harmony with God's circle of love, And her oil and flour never ran out. Not only that, when her son got sick and died, through God's grace, Elijah resurrected that boy. Is this a metaphor for the difficult times? We put ourselves in harmony with the circle of love. God provides and never lets our resources run out. And those who rest in the grave, God will resurrect again.
5: That's the answer to the sister's question as to how do we learn to trust him? That's the answer. Because as you start to give of yourself, you see that no matter how much you give, and no matter what kind of trials come to you, it's for the edifying of your own self or to others around you, and that he always provides.
0: And, and the root that tempts us to act in self-interest is that powerful feeling of fear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were. Perfect love casts out all. Yeah. Fear. It is the it, look at the look at the temptation. It almost always stems from fear, fear of of injury, fear of failure, fear of what others think, fear of hurt, fear of starvation, fear of pain, fear, fear, fear. This is the root. But love. And you think about when you actually love somebody else. Think about any of these circumstances. This is your last morsel of bread, and the person you can either keep it for yourself or you can give it to your own child who is starving. Now is it a hard choice? No. No, see, suddenly when love comes in, you're not concerned with self anymore. The only power in the universe that can purge our hearts from fear is the power of love. On Sunday's lesson, the first paragraph states, Religious faith can be a powerful tool either for good or for evil. The same kind of drive that motivates someone to lose his life for Christ's sake can, in other circumstances, drive others to blow themselves up in the name of God.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. What do you think about that statement?
4: We see it happening every day.
0: Do we? Do you believe that the same kind of drive that motivates a follower of Christ motivates a follower of Satan? Mm -hmm. What is it that motivates a follower of Christ to give his life for others?
3: Mm -hmm.
0: What is it that motivates a follower of Satan to strap bombs on himself, to blow himself up and others with him? Mm Hate. Hate selfishness, mm-hmm. anger, resentment, bitterness. But is it love? Do no. You think it's these love? People, yeah, these people don't
1: acknowledge that they're following Satan.
0: No, I don't think they think it's love at all. I'm, absolutely not. No, these are the enemies to Allah. And these enemies are to be killed. They're not, they're not acting in love. They're acting in vengeance.
4: But they're taught that that's a good thing to do.
0: They're taught that it's a good thing to do.
4: In the sense Before of their duty.
0: Own right. And yes, and, and, and see, and doing it's also got selfish motives involved. See, if you do this, then you get extra rewards in the kingdom. You see, you get to have seventy virgins in paradise and all this other stuff. So it's all about self-centered motivation rather than self-sacrificing motivation. So the, these motives that drive these people to do what they do is not the same motive that drove Christ to the cross, is it? Not even close. Not only that, what about the idea of faith itself? Think about the two types of faith. Would both groups have the same kind of faith? Godly faith is an enlightened faith, an intelligent faith, a faith that's based on truth, a faith that's based on, individ- uh, on, on evidence, a faith that respects individuality, a faith that respects God's laws of love and liberty. I mean, it's an intelligent, enlightened faith, isn't it? mm-hmm. It's the faith that will drop bombs on yourself and blow other people up, that same type of faith. Is it a faith that that wants more truth, that will open its mind to evidence? No, it's a closed-minded faith, not an open-minded faith. So even the faith isn't the same. There's a total difference in mindset. And you can see what, what direction the two types of faith takes. One takes a person to a state of ennobled character, where we care about others, where we have a perspective, where we can see past ourselves and give of ourselves to others. Another sees only from a self-centered perspective, hates people that are different. The The godly faith loves the person who would drop bombs on themselves. The ungodly person hates the person who would minister to an infidel. You see? Yes.
3: Thursday night, I went to a dinner sponsored by World Magazine, which is a non-denominational, evangelical, conservative Christian base. And it was the staff from this um, magazine, and one of the questions that was asked during the evening was, in your experience of publishing this magazine, what's the most disappointing thing that you've encountered? And the editor said probably the most disappointing thing she felt was the response that they get from the Evangelical Christian base when they print something that people don't approve of. The the hateful, aggressive response that they get, which is everything the opposite of what you're saying, so I think when we compare um, Christianity to, say, a particular worldview. view, we have to look within Christianity ourselves. It's the difference between freedom and not freedom, between coercion and making up your own mind. And that can happen right within what we consider the safe place.
0: Absolutely. Could it happen within Adventism? Yeah. <laughs> Prepare yourselves. I'm serious. Prepare yourselves. Yeah. You guys are going to come under it. I'm going to just tell you right now, if you actually value... What was just said, This principles of love, the truth spoken in love and leaving people free, a God who is like that, you begin actively promoting that, you will come under attack. I have personally experienced this for the last ten years or more. My wife and I have been attacked. We have had people try to shut down our Sabbath school class at uh, other churches that we've been at, um, tried to silence this message. It's actively going on all the time. You can bet on it, but the Lord continues to send His agencies to open the avenues for this message to go forward. And so I, I encourage you all to take this message forward. Uh, you're going to find that you will find people opposing. That's okay. We love those people. But we can't, we can't allow their closed-mindedness to stop the message, can we? But this enlightened faith versus a, an unenlightened faith. And, and, and I, I put this out because I want to point out that... that uh, some people can have an unenlightened faith, but still be recognized as a child by God because of where they are in their journey. Consider Rahab. Mm-hmm. Rahab's faith, and she had faith. She's recognized in the hall of faith. She exercised her faith to hide the spies and then to lie, to protect them. How much did she know of God? Where was she in the journey?
4: In the beginning.
0: Yes. And so she had to, I mean, think about this. Think about this right now. If, a, if you to try to put her, ourselves in Rahab's shoes, A couple of um, spies from Iraq have uh, come into America, and, and you're hiding them in your home, and the FBI comes and wants to know if they're there. Would it take faith on your part to side with those people? You bet it would. Absolutely. Okay. In that context, these were the enemies of her people. She had to make a decision. Whose side was she on? She chose to put herself on God's side. Now she didn't know much about God's character, His methods, His principles, and so she, in her heart, put herself on God's side and did the best she knew how to do, and she lied. We have examples of enlightened faith, though Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There, they had an enlightened faith, and when they were called before Nebuchadnezzar, they said, "No, we know our God can deliver us from this fiery furnace if He chooses, but even if He doesn't, we won't bow." You see they knew God what God could do but they didn't presume to declare what God will do. They left God free to determine in this situation which was going to be more glorious for his kingdom that they should die as Peter did, as Paul did, as so many of the apostles did, as Stephen did, or whether he would deliver them in this case. They trusted God with that account. So many Christians today have difficulties come in their life, and they've heard the health, wellness, gospel. If you just have enough faith, if you just claim the promises, you see, then you can bind God to your will, you see, and God will do what he says. And so if you're sick, you can pray the prayer, and you can know with certainty that God will heal you. Is that an enlightened faith? It's not really that enlightened An enlightened faith says, I know God can. There's no question. But I know that he has perspectives beyond my own. And maybe it will be more for his glory and do more for his kingdom that I don't survive this ordeal in this particular circumstance. And I will rise.
5: That's a mature faith, isn't it? Christ said, if it be possible, take this cup from me. He certainly knew he could.
0: Yes, but it wasn't possible to complete the mission, was it? No. No. The bottom paragraph Sunday's lesson tells us the Bible doesn't teach the pursuit of political power as a means of carrying forward God's kingdom. It doesn't teach the pursuit of political power. The lesson points out that religions can abuse political power to control people and to do horrible things. And I want to ask you, what are the core elements that a religion must teach in order for it to be able to do these horrible political things. What are the core elements that a religion must get you to believe in order for you to go along to exploit, hurt, domineer, control other people in the name of God?
1: That they are the voice of God?
0: Okay, that they are the voice of God. That they are approaches. Fear? I see things. How about how about lies about God himself? Don't we have to first start with God as a God who likes that kind of stuff? I mean, isn't that really where it starts? I mean, you couldn't really get people to go along with it, even for the voice of God, if you first didn't already accept God does that kind of stuff. So doesn't it doesn't start with distortions about God Himself. Yeah. So so these religions will misrepresent God. How, how does that happen? How can we represent God in that way? God killed a son on the cross. Justice requires that God to execute and punish and inflicts wrath and I mean all these different things that people believe. How about faith without evidence? We believe because, well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We don't have to ask questions, we don't inquire, we don't search, we don't think, we just believe. Is that a core teaching that would be necessary to get people to hurt other people in the name of God? Mm-hmm. Seems to me it would be, that if anybody's thinking and reasoning, going to go, wait a minute here, you know what, um, you know, we say God's love, but, but how can we get these people to love if, if we're threatening them? See, if you're thinking, you can't go along with that. So you have to get people not to think.
3: How about that God has favorites? So you happen to be the favorite group.
0: Uh, Okay. An exclusionary God. Back to that whole picture of God. An exclusionary God. That he's excluded. He doesn't really love everyone. He loves some more than others. So he's arbitrary. It really undercuts back the whole way we see God. How about focus on behavior rather than character? We have to have people say the the right prayer, get baptized in the right way, uh, do the right rituals, uh, pray five times a day, facing a certain part of the earth. Um, I mean, we have to we have to have the right behaviors, uh, avoid uh, going to church on the right day, whatever it might be. We focus on behavior rather than character. See, we can't accept somebody who is not who is maybe Hindu who loves others so much he would give his life, like Gandhi. We couldn't accept that because he's he's not accepted Christ. So we have to persecute somebody like that, don't we? We can't focus on the character of the person. We have to focus on behavior, don't we? Wouldn't that be a key element?
4: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So distortions about God, blind faith that doesn't think and reason, focusing on behaviors rather than characters, and then undermining the laws of freedom coercive pressure that was said earlier. seems to me these are core elements that, that will come to bear to get people to go along with using religion and political power together to hurt others in the name of God. Other thoughts? Yeah.
5: I think how you said how you know, they focus on behavior more than a character. One reason why they might is because it's so easy to hide behavior. So they can judge you for something they see that's wrong in you they can be doing the same thing, but they're not condemned because no one's
0: judging them. Yeah. So their behaviors may look good on the outside, but their ugly character may not be seen. Yeah, it's a good point. What did Jesus say about the Pharisees? You are whitewashed sepulchers, looking pure on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all types of wickedness. So he's talking about that external facade that we put on may look really good, but the character is all sick and warped.
1: Eventually it becomes revealed. Because by your fruits, you shall know them.
0: Not necessarily in this world, though. True. It may not be revealed until the second coming. There are there are some, I, I don't know how you say it, but uh, I guess we use the serpent metaphor, snakes in the grass. <laughs> okay? There are snakes in the grass that go along uh, looking very, very good for a long time and might never actually be exposed in this world. And there's, they, they just put on this, and they're believed and revered and, and, and looked up to, but yet... Maybe they're only interested in self and glorifying self.
4: I think another thing is that so many of these religions have controlled the people through ignorance, kept them ignorant of the truth.
0: That's exactly right. A a, a faith that doesn't inquire, doesn't reason. Somebody look at Tuesday's lesson. Read the second paragraph for us. A number of problems, it starts out. A
2: number of problems exist, with the reaction of the disciples... There is zeal for the Lord, which is good, which all disciples should have. But misdirected zeal, even in a good cause, can produce harm. Than good, for instance, James and John use the story of Elijah as their model. The only problem is that they misused it. Elijah brought fire down from heaven to consume sacrifices, First Kings 18, not recalcitrant people, if he had been slain another way.
0: First off, what's the mistake made in the lesson?
2: Like
0: Kings one. That's exactly right. It was uh it was not first Kings eighteen, it was first it was uh Second Kings one. See, first Kings eighteen is the fire coming for sacrifices. But second Kings one, what's going on there? The fire fire the the exactly right. That's what the disciples were thinking, not about sacrifices, but Elijah called fire down from heaven to consume the fifty soldiers once and twice. Remember. So consuming and these were the Samaritan, Samaritan captain and his soldiers. And, of course, they're in Samaria here. Okay, So they're in Samaria, and uh, they remember Elijah called down fire to kill the Samarian captains and their soldiers. Okay, And so they're going, well, they reject Christ, maybe we should do the same thing. Uh, What was Christ's response? What did he say to the disciples?
5: He asked them whose spirit they were in.
0: Well, he actually said he told them, you don't know what spirit you are of. You don't know what spirit you are of. What spirit would, would want to do that?
4: Spirit of hate.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, there wasn't a spirit of love. They didn't love these people, did they? See, if those were their own children, if, you, if your children were sick with some, some disease and you were coming with a remedy and your children, for whatever reason, were rejecting the remedy, would you then want to call in a nuclear strike force to blow them up? I mean, that's what they were basically doing, right? Yeah. Christ is here to offer a remedy to heal to his children. They, because of the closed mind, biases, prejudices, don't comprehend the whole situation correctly. And therefore, they're rejecting the remedy. The disciples say, well, let's kill him then. Mm-hmm. Jesus goes, well, you don't even know what you're talking about. We're here to heal. We're here to save. I've come to bring you life and bring it more abundantly.
3: What about Second Kings 1?
0: Second Kings 1, absolutely. This is out of uh, uh, Acts of the Apostles 540. It says, The disciples knew that it was the purpose of Christ to bless the Samaritans by his presence, and the coldness, jealousy, and disrespect shown to their master filled them with surprise and indignation. James and John especially were aroused. That he whom uh, they so highly rev- rev- reverenced should be thus treated seemed to them a wrong, too great to pass over without immediate punishment. In their zeal they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did, referring to the destruction of the Samaritan captains and their companies when uh, sent out to take the prophet Elijah. They were surprised to see that Jesus was pained by their words, and still more surprised at the rebuke that fell for, upon their ears. You know not what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. It is no part of Christ's mission to compel men to receive him. It is Satan and men actuated by His Spirit who seek to compel the conscience. Under a pretense of zeal for righteousness, men who are confederated with evil angels sometimes bring suffering upon their fellow men in order to convert them to their own ideas of religion. Confederated with who? Evil Evil angels to convert them. Wow. I mean, it's pretty black and white to me. I see that pretty clearly. Do you all see that? Do you all see as you look around the world how many good religious folk don't see this and are willing to use coercive pressures to convert? So why the fire on Elijah's day? Was it God's ideal? No. Was it God's preference? Or was it the only thing the people in the day would respond to? What was going on? What was going on in that day? What's it say in... Hosea four sixteen. It says, The children of Israel are stubborn, stubborn like a mule. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? What does it mean? They
2: wouldn't see it any other
0: way. How can you speak soft words to people who are stubborn, stubborn like a mule? Ever have a child who is stubborn, stubborn like a mule? You tell him to pick up his toys and he back talks. You tell him to turn off the TV and he won't do it. You tell him to do his chores and he grumbles and he won't do it. And you have another child who's completely eager to obey. Uh, you give the first word of instruction. They're eager to jump to to follow, follow the guidance given. Do you speak differently to the two children? Does that mean you love them differently?
3: No.
0: no. The children of Israel are stubborn, stubborn like a mule. God had to... Uh, act in ways to, uh, uh, I guess, in the mindset of the Old Testament people, what was it that they used in their minds to determine who was the true God? Power. 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 Power, Power, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Our God is stronger than your God. Remember when uh, the sons of Eli took the ark out and it was taken captive? And what did the Philistines do with the ark?
2: Put in the temple of Dagon. Put
0: in the, temple of, Put in the te- temple of Dagon. Why? Our God is stronger than your God. But what did, what did the, uh, the, the pagan God happen to him? Next day he's bowed down to the t- oh. and The next day his hands and things are, are broken. Now why is God doing this kind of stuff? Why is Dagon, this piece of stone, have its hands and stuff broken? Uh, you, do you think that as the, the people are gluing the idol back together, that some child might say to their parent, why are we worshiping a God that we have to glue together? I mean, you think they were, God was trying to lead them? You see, the, all they understood was power. That's all they understood. Will God stoop to reach people where they are?: Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And so he used the power as a way to I'll give you another example at Sinai. Sinai. What were the children of Israel doing at Sinai?
2: She she's she's
0: Golden calf. And so what does God do? Thunder. And all the children said, Moses, don't let God speak to us lest we die. You speak to God, and, 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 and then you come tell us. And what did Moses say? Standing there right on the mountain, Exodus chapter 20, as all the children are terrified, begging Moses not to let God speak to them, don't Moses be afraid. said, don't need to be afraid. there is no reason, there is no need for you to be afraid. Now, Moses is experiencing the exact same events that the children of Israel are experiencing. They're terrified. Moses says there's no need to be afraid. What made the difference?
3: Yes. That lesson gets repeated in the time of Elijah when he does call down fire to burn up the sacrifice and the Lord takes him into the cleft and says, okay, I'm not in the thunder. I'm not in the... He, He usually works... Through the small voice. That's right. That's his preferred way of listening.
0: The fire, the earthquake, and the wind. And he's not in any of them. And then that sound of the still small voice. Mm-hmm. And when Elijah learned that lesson himself, what happened to Elijah next? He's translated. He's translated. Mm-hmm. Okay? When he finally figures out it's not the might or the power, it's the gentle, small voice of love. That's God. It was right after that, does when he burned up the 50s. Yes. Yes, it was.
3: But he had already learned
0: the lesson. He'd learned the lesson, but had the rest of the people learned the lesson? No. And so God meets where, where they are. Now, we don't know that all those 50s are going to be lost. There's a draft. You know, 19 year old kid gets drafted and either goes and marches out there with his commander or else he uh, gets, you know, executed. So he's marching out there like he's told to do. We don't know that all those people in those 50 are going to be lost. Uh, some of those kids might be in, in heaven. We don't know. We'll see what resurrection they come up in. Somebody read that last paragraph there, even worse.
1: Even worse, of course, was the harsh and judgmental attitude toward sinners. The work of every disciple of Christ should be that of seeking ways to bring sinners to the foot of the cross, to show them the incredible mercy and grace of God, who in himself bore the punishment of their sins. Thus, no matter how sinful their lives have been, through Jesus they can have full pardon, full forgiveness, and a new life in him. That is our work as disciples. We can leave the judging to the Lord.
0: And see, this whole punishment for the sin thing I want to finish up on. Does the punishment from sin come from sin or come from God? Sin. sin. sin itself. And what is, what is the expectation and perspective of most of religious people of the world? It comes from God. And does that perspective change everything? Yes. Think about it. Absolutely. In the Garden of Eden, he told them, in the day you eat... I will be forced to kill you. You will die. No, you will die. And the day you eat, you will surely die. He just told them the, the consequences that happen from stepping out of the law upon which all life is created to operate on. When you step out of that law, life can't continue. You're going to die. The wages of sin is death. Sin when it's full grown brings forth death. First Selected Message is 235. We're not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start to train in circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner. Works in him a change of character. It makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God and cut themselves off from the channel of blessing. And the sure result is ruin and death. I mean, how plain is that? It's exactly what happens when we sin. We sever our, our connection with God. Now, some good friends of mine have said, but Tim, can't you see that the Bible and the writings of Ellen White are are filled with language that leads people to draw the other conclusion? That God's justice requires him to inflict external punishment upon the wicked. Only if you don't ask some questions when you read. So let's examine a little bit. Here's out of Ezekiel chapter 24. It says, God speaking about Jerusalem. The city of murders is doomed. I myself will pile up the firewood, bring more wood, fan the flames, cook the meat, boil away the broth, burn up the bones. And now set the empty bronze pot on its coals and let it get red hot. You will not be pure again until I, you have felt the full force of my anger. I, the Lord, have spoken. The time has come for me to act. Does it sound pretty severe?
4: Yeah.
0: Yes. But see, this is where people stop. They read this and they go, see, God will get you. God will get you. He'll, 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 he'll strike out against you. But you have to ask the next question, which nobody ever does. What actually happened?
3: Babylonians.
0: Thank you. The Babylonians came and destroyed the city. He
3: punished them for
0: yeah. being so fierce. Yes. And, and so the Babylonians <laughs> came, not God. God didn't rain fire down from heaven. The Babylonians came because they refused to follow the warnings, because they refused to turn back, because they refused to, to be reconciled to God and follow His ways and methods. He withdrew His hand of protection withdrew that hedge, and the Babylonians came and destroyed the city. Well, then why would God speak to it like this? Because I just mentioned in Hosea, they were stubborn, stubborn like a mule. Imagine you have a 10-year-old who is that stubborn kid, and you go out here to Clouding Canyon with your 10-year-old, and he meets another kid, and they're playing frisbee, and your kid is chasing the frisbee heading for the cliff. And you tell him to stop, because you see he's heading toward the cliff, but he's stubborn like a mule, so he just ignores you. And so you shout, but he, he's stubborn. He's <laughs> Do you risk shouting, even threatening, if you don't stop, I'm going to beat your bottom raw? Might you do that as he's getting closer to the cliff? Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't stop, if he continues and still refuses to heed your warning and goes over the cliff, do you then climb down, take off your belt, and beat him? you don't have to do you if he goes over the cliff do you pull out your rifle to shoot him before he hits the bottom to make sure he is duly punished for his disobedience before he gets there do you have to inflict anything upon the boy no No. if he does stop he heeds the warning and stops do you beat him You see this over and over again. God is dealing with people who are running headlong into self-destruction. And he raises his voice in love to threaten. But when they don't listen, what happens? He lets them go to reap the consequence. And then, if your child goes over the cliff, he, he doesn't listen. There's only one thing you have to do, and that's cry. You see, Ephraim, Ephraim, how can I give you up? How can I let you go? But you were tied to your idols and you were bent on leaving me. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to take you as a hen takes her chicks under her wings, but you would not. My son, my son, how I've longed to protect you and keep you safe, but you wouldn't let me. You see, the only thing for God to do if we refuse his warnings is to cry as he lets us go. And there's a whole bunch of writings, and I wish we had time. We're out of time now, because I had this whole section uh, of Ellen White's writings from a very controversy where she uses some of this strong language, and I was going to go through and show you that in her writings, she actually, maybe we'll just take a quick minute, um, because it's so good. It says, it says God has, God has given in His Word decisive evidence that He will punish the transgressors of His law. Those who flatter themselves that He is too merciful to execute justice upon the sinner have only to look at the cross of Calvary. The death of the spotless Son of God testifies that the wages of sin is death. That every violation of God's law must receive its just retribution. Christ, the uh, sinless one, became sin for man. See, that sounds like that tough stuff again, doesn't it? But if you just keep reading, it's so amazing. He bore the guilt of transgression, the hiding of his father's face. So, what did the father do? Let him go. He let him. He, let him he hid himself. He he withdrew until the heart, until his heart was broken and his life was crushed out. Uh, did the father actively inflict something, or the the fat father let him go and withdraw? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the sacrifice was made that sinners might be redeemed. In no other way could man be free from the penalty of sin. Okay, God has given men, uh, to men a declaration of his character and of his methods and dealings with sin. The Lord is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant goodness, mercy, truth, uh, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means leave the guilty unpunished all the wicked must be destroyed, she goes on to say, and he's quoting the Bible here. Um, God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in slavish obedience. He desires that the creatures of his hand shall love him because he is worthy of love. Now, how could that happen if he is threatening people? How can you get love from threats? So you have to understand the first comments in the light of he forces no will or judgment. He takes no pleasure in a forced obedience. He wants freedom. So we have to understand, God can't be saying, love me or I'm going to kill you. Because that would destroy the ability to love. I'm not going to read this all. There's several paragraphs in the notes. But she goes on to say, um, those who have sided with evil have so transformed themselves that God's presence to them is a consuming fire. That they long to be hidden from his face. That they run and beg for the rocks and trees to hide God from them, to be hidden from God. And that their exclusion from heaven is, quote, voluntary with themselves. They don't want to be there.
3: Where
0: is that? Uh, Great Controversy page, 542-543. And so... I challenge you, when you get some of those statements and people say, well, the the, the scriptures and and the writings of Ellen White say that that, that these other views are, are legitimate, only if you take them out of context and don't see them in the setting of the whole. Because when you see them in the setting of the whole, you will see that God actually, His wrath is merely letting people reap the consequences of their free choice. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have sent your Son to bring us the truth about you, to win us back to trust, to provide a remedy, to actually heal and restore us back into unity with you. We thank you that you are not threatening to kill us, but you are warning us to protect us, that if we continue on a rebellious course that we'll destroy ourselves, and you love us too much to let us go without stern warnings of love. We pray that we will hear your warnings, open the heart, come in, restore us, and give us the ability to effectively articulate these truths about you, to free so many minds that are held into darkness with distorted images of you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.